Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Life Lessons Podcast with me, Simon Mundy. This podcast has a simple mission, to have discussions that reveal something important about life and how best to live it. My guests range from the biggest sporting names on the planet through to neuroscientists, philosophers, psychologists and world-renowned thinkers. We talk about things like how to skillfully relate to uncomfortable thoughts and feelings, the power of acceptance and psychological flexibility, how to get your circadian rhythms in sync to feel your best, right through to the nature of reality. These conversations and the bite-sized episodes have the power to change your life. Nick Matthew is the greatest English squash player of all time, and the lessons he's able to share from his career are profound and really transferable to any area of life. Nick had an incredible desire to improve and do whatever was necessary to take his game to new levels. And that attitude and approach took him right to the top of the world rankings and made him a multiple world champion. But underneath his outstanding results and attitude, Nick just loves the game, playing and losing himself while on court. Nick is thoughtful, he's articulate and discussing his life lessons with him was an absolute pleasure. And I know there are golden nuggets galore in this conversation that anyone can learn from. Nick Matthew, what a pleasure to have you on the show. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Simon. Thanks for uh, having me on. I'm a big fan of the show. Oh, stop it. No, don't <laughs> stop it. Carry on. Well, yeah, I was a big fan before it changed names and then followed you uh, across all your new guests and you sort of different, but same format, I guess, because it was, if it's not broken, don't fix it. But I like the way you've evolved and continue to grow. That's what you've got to do in all forms of life, right? I'll tell you what, Nick. 
that's my favourite intro <laughs> that I've ever had. So thank you very much. I'm brown nose in you, sorry. Please feel free. It's a rare treat. <laughs> I'm delighted to have you on as well. Obviously, you've uh, had a fascinating career on so many levels and obviously what you're doing now in terms of trying to develop the next generation. But before you got into squash... Tennis was your go-to, wasn't it? I mean, I know you were like actually good at every single sport you played. Captain of cricket, football, swimming, but tennis for a while had its nose in front of the rest, right? Yeah, it did. Um, not sure why it's such a long time ago now. You know, you never, you can never quite remember why it was that you got into certain sports. I know I got into cricket and football more through school. My dad was a PE teacher as well. So, you know, the landscape was very sporty growing up. My granddad was uh, a rugby player, always told me that he would have played for Wales if it wasn't for the war. Um, didn't know whether that was one of your sort of granddad's stories or whether that was true, but I know he played for Cardiff and he was a scrum half and very good rugby player. So sporting sort of landscape's always been in the family. And um, yeah, tennis, I don't know why. Loved tennis for a number of years and somehow squash overtook it at one stage. I'm not sure exactly why or how. Uh, I do remember playing a lot of tennis and being second fiddle to a young lad called David Sherwood, who was one of the most talented sports people in my age group. He sort of was on Sheffield Wednesday's books for football and ended up playing tennis Davis Cup at one point. And he was, maybe he was beating me every week at tennis, so I chose something that he didn't play. <laughs> Funny. Just a quick note, you said about your dad being a, or rather your grandfather being a scrum half who said he would have played for Wales, but for the war. So my dad was a scrum half who said he would have played for Scotland if he'd been a couple of inches taller, although that is definitely <laughs> incorrect. But in terms of your decision to go with squash, I've obviously done my research and you came out with quite an interesting line in one thing I either listened to or watched that the juniors in tennis were like rivals, whereas the juniors in squash they were more like friends. So there was more of that close element to it. Does that ring any bells? Yeah, me 100%. You know, other people might have different experiences, but for me, my overriding memory going to uh, tennis tournaments was sort of me and my dad sat in the car waiting for my next match. You know, I didn't really have any people that I'd met and connected with that closely. And then, whereas on the squash, I couldn't wait to go back the following week and I met people from all around the country. There was a little bit more when the court was free, everyone would sort of jump on the court rats kind of thing. I was one of the court rats that would jump on and just play sort of three-quarter court where everyone congregates in one quarter, which is sort of out. And then you play in the other, the two people play in the other three quarters and the winner stays on and, and you play kind of around like that. And you're sort of in the quarter chatting to people and meeting people. And yeah, and that was just my experience. And, and that's been my experience of squash ever since. You know, it's a very social sport. You know, you, you kind of have a big game you sweat it out you battle on the court and then the loser buys the beers kind of thing it's it's and it's a very you know even my kids now in the squash club that I grow up at it is a squash and tennis club but the squash members are more social the tennis members tend to sort of go home after their matches whereas the squash people tend to shower up and and go down for a few pints interesting and obviously your dad loved his squash too so was his passion for the sport a factor in your choice I think so. I think now, you know, I'm a pair of myself and whilst it's got to be the, your kid's choice, what they get into, you know, how how are they going to choose when they're seven or eight years old? They don't know sort of what the different sports are. So I'm sure the parents, you know, we're the ones who take it down. Oh, why don't you try swimming, Charlotte? Why don't you know? My wife's just got back into netball after sort of 20 years. 
Uh, she played at university and has got back into it. So she's taken my daughter down to netball recently. You know, so I do think that you get into things on the back of parents and and then it's friendships that sort of keep you there. Yeah. And you mentioned your dad was a teacher. How would you describe his personality? <laughs> oh, how long we got? Um, <laughs> incredibly supportive. I read a book the other day by a guy called Toby Tanza, who who launched Shoe for Africa, a massive charity project in Africa. And he went to the same school as I did. And, and he quotes my dad in his book saying that he was his favorite teacher and that he believed in him when no one else did. And a lot of people say that about my dad. They say that, you know, if you gave your all in your PE, you didn't have to be the most talented sports person in the world, but if you were a good person and you got stuck in and you played things in the right spirit, he'd sort of do anything for you. But he didn't really tolerate anyone who wasted his time. And that includes you, doesn't it? It includes me, you know. like he, The only time we've sort of ever fallen out is when he took me to a squash tournament and I just didn't really feel it on that day and I kind of gave up a bit too easily. And he said, well, look, I'm just not, I've got better things to do. I'm not going to take you. I'll go watch Sheffield Wednesday if you're not going to... Uh, if you're not going to try your hardest. And that was just a lesson for me. You know, it's not about the winner losing. My dad just didn't tolerate less than 100% effort. And that was it, really. That moment then when you dialed it in for the plate match, I think it was. <laughs> and um, do you think that really crystallised the determination in you that you were renowned for in terms of your career, leaving no stone unturned, going the extra mile, all that stuff? I think so. I think my dad just got it. You know, he was he was there for me. I see it now with my daughter. He takes her to tennis and he'll be constructively critiquing sort of the coaching and what she's doing, but not in a way that's sort of putting pressure, but he'll always be like, oh, then let's get an ice cream. You know, he's, he's very, um, he just makes you want to come back for more and learn a lot from that period. I'm sure I didn't get it overnight. I'm sure I was sort of like with most kids, you know, the penny only drops probably six, 12 months later once you sort of, these things come, you know, hit you when you least expect it, I think. When you least expect it, sorry, should I say it. I'm sure that I rebelled on that day when he said, you know, when he fell out with me. But, you know, later the penny did drop. That That's sort of all that you could do, really. I was a big one. I remember just when I was playing, I just hated that feeling of going home and sitting on the sofa and, and being restless because you've not given, you know, you've not given everything. I knew that if I'd given everything that day, I could relax better and watch telly and switch off and, and everything. Um, and that stayed with me even today. You know, if I go to the gym even now, I've not I've sort of been a bit half-hearted about it. It bugs me and it eats away at me and I hate that feeling. It's like the worst feeling in the world for me. So I always sort of abided by that really. Yeah, that's a lovely point to make. And I'm trying to recall the name of, it's something like, and I'm going to absolutely mangle it, but it's something like the Zygonic effect where basically it's like, if you don't finish a task properly it lingers in the back of your mind and so I can really relate to what you said there sometimes I'll write a little note to myself on a Friday saying right let's finish the week strong and then enjoy the weekend for example because I tend to be running on fumes on a Friday afternoon a little bit and having that reminder to behave in a way that you'll thank yourself for a bit later yeah I like that sort of you know end, end the week end the session doesn't it have to be hard work either, by the way? I always say to the people that I coach, you know, end the session on a high. So therefore, it, it turns an average session into a, a reasonable one. It, it turns a good session into a potentially great one. It turns a rubbish one into an average one. If you've just finished with 10 minutes quality, it might just be going on the side court, hitting the ball on your own. It might go to the gym, do a bit of core or some stretching or a bit of yoga or, or, or yes, yeah, certainly go and work hard and finish off with a bit of hard work to finish. But 
definitely great way to finish the week or the day or the session on a high note. And then you sort of, I don't know, those endorphins come to you then. And then, uh, well, these days you earn that pint of beer, pint of uh, lager, you know, but, but when I was a bit younger, I earned that relaxation on the sofa. Absolutely. It's just got me thinking about starting as well. I know you've spoken about seeing young players who don't necessarily look the most talented, but if they're the ones who show up early, who ask questions, who show application, then your ears might prick up a bit and you think, okay, this person you know, might get somewhere because of their approach. And just applying that to, like I said, the start, I've got a little thing I'm doing at the moment where I'm not reading the news on my phone until I finish my work for the day because I was getting into a bad habit of reading the news. That would just suck me in and it wasn't the ideal start to the day. So we've covered finishing a session or a day. What's your words of wisdom on starting a day well? I think, yeah, the worst thing you can do, I always start and back foot if the first thing I do is look at my phone, you know, look at your messages. It's like if, you know, I'm, I'm generally active. Even what I do now is generally active and if I do come to have to do any sort of paperwork or, you know, work on my laptop, if I look at my phone and do messages first, just get distracted. So for me, you've just got to put all those distractions to one side and it might only be 30 minutes, but look at them 30 minutes after you've started your day, you know, and then that way you've started it on that positive note. And generally speaking, you look at them and you might go, oh, I'll reply to them later anyway. Whereas when you when you look at them in the beginning, you get a little bit sucked in, don't you? And a bit bogged down by it. So, uh, probably start as you mean to finish really is um is that metaphor for me love it okay let's get back to your dad the three d's he instilled the three d's in you am i right in saying that and then also could you just explain what they are yeah i had them written on my wall actually it makes him sound always wary about saying this one because it does make him sound like a pushy parent and he wasn't and he went with me you know he was led by i wanted to do it so therefore he pushed me a little bit more you know i'm sure that if i had been fighting against him or pushing back then he would have found a different way of doing it but he had a he had a captive audience so you know he pushing me and I wasn't the most talented I was low down in the rankings so we sort of said right we're going to work hard and anyone else can have a better attitude than anyone else and over time I'm going to catch up and and that was yeah the three d's it was the discipline it was a dedication and then it was determination you know so every day I just try my hardest um I dedicate myself to it over a number of years I think I like that word out the three probably dedication because to me, that's something that we can all do. It's something that's sort of sustainable. You see people who are pretty disciplined, but they might only do it for two weeks here or a month there. And, you know, I don't know, like maybe January when everyone gets in the gym kind of thing. And then by February, they're not doing it so much more anymore. Um, but I like the word dedication probably out of the three, because that sounds sustainable to me. And that's what it had to be. It had to be something that you did over, you know, you're only doing one session at a time, one hour at a time, one minute at a time, but... You've got to be able to sustain whatever you do in any form of life, in any walk of life for a long period to be successful at it. And you were successful and you did sustain that for a long period. Inevitably, even you would have periods where your motivation sagged or you weren't up for it. How would you manage those moments? Yeah, if, look, if it's if it's a one-off day, you know, push hard, you know, um, push through it. If, if it's something that's becoming a pattern more common then it might just be as simple as taking a rest you know my dad was huge as well on at the end of my season taking a couple of weeks to feel like I'm ready to come back to training and then take another week and I was like what like I want to get back into it now I want to catch up he's like no no this will benefit you down the line you'll be fresher than anyone else 
So I used to always do that, you know, I'd come back and I'd be ready to train again. And he said, right, you're taking a week from now. And I'd be literally climbing the walls to get back on court. And, you know, it was a real interesting dynamic. So, you know, that sort of, he, he challenged me from both sides of things, really. He, he challenged me to give my all, but he also challenged me to make sure that I was resting and add longevity to what I was doing because uh, you can end up pushing and pushing and pushing and just that quality just dips. So very intelligent man. I've come to realize, especially now I'm a parent, especially now I'm a parent myself, you know, you perhaps don't realize, do we, until we're in the same position. Yeah, that's definitely true. When kids are on the scene, you definitely can see your parents in a slightly different light. That's certainly accurate. And I think that's fascinating, his approach to making sure that you were thinking of the long game and really resting. And clearly that did pay off in terms of your longevity. And it just reminded me, actually, uh, a listener tweeted recently he's been working on his phd for like five weeks seven days a week and he said something like oh the last few days have been a real struggle and i'm like yeah well they will be and factoring in that rest the downtime whatever you're doing is so fundamental isn't it 100 percent, yeah and um he encouraged me to play a lot of other sports as well you know have other interests so it wasn't probably until i was 15 16 that I really specialized in squash so that really kept things fresh for me as well i love playing cricket on a weekend or football after school I probably dropped football slightly earlier because I had some team matches on a Monday night at squash and the football always was on a Monday night after school and found it hard to do both but you know I, I did play everything pretty much till I was 15 16 and I know that's a hot topic sort of how how young or how old to specialize and yeah like I think you know it's one of the things I'm probably most proud of in my career that I didn't really peak until I was probably in my early 30s really in my career and that's quite late really to peak and I think that this sort of late developer theme was coming all the way through my juniors, you know, whether that was by accident or by design, it's something that sort of followed me all the way through my career. Yeah. So I chatted to David Epstein, who wrote the fascinating book called Range about that. And he always says, on the one hand, you've got Tiger Woods, who is, as we know, was on television driving golf balls at the age of two, which is unbelievable. And then Roger Federer or yourself, another world number one racket sports person who had that diversity of interests in sports. And my take is just that if you do have that diversity, it's not necessarily about which is going to make you more successful. But if you've had that variety of sports and then you land on one like you did at the age of 15, 16, there's no guarantee of success, but it does virtually guarantee you're going to love it because you've actively chosen it. You've whittled it down to that sport. 100%, yeah you actually start to realize what it takes to be good at some of them. You know, you, you might not have the full picture, but you start to get little pockets of uh, ideas and insights and you might go to county training at cricket or badminton or something and you see the sort of that next level and then there's, you know, you realize, well, actually there's another level above this and, and so on. And yeah, that was huge for me. Um, and uh, it gave me that variety. And, you know, now my kids, they do everything. You know, I don't know if they'll... Whilst it would be great if you could guarantee that um, if my daughter was hitting golf balls at age three, my son's coming up three, if he was hitting golf balls at age three, if I could guarantee he had a career like Tiger Woods, then I'd sign for it. But you might, he might also hate golf by the time he's 12, you know, if that was the case. So, you know, it could go both ways, couldn't it? Absolutely. And in terms of going both ways, you'd sign for Tiger Woods' career, but would you sign for everything else that's been with it? And that's no judgment on him, but it's been, a, in some respects, a bit of a poison chalice, you know? Something we never had to worry about as a squash player. <laughs> yeah. we, can, we can sail under the radar quite nicely. I know, yeah. And Laura Massara, actually, who I chatted to about this subject, because obviously the fact that squash doesn't 
get the recognition it deserves. For example, not being in the Olympics, which you and I can both agree from our point of view certainly is wrong. What was interesting was speaking to Laura and she was like, okay, once she'd got to the end of her career and she'd obviously reached world number one and won the big titles, it was really you and her who managed to do that from the English scene. And actually she got to the point of, instead of being just frustrated or annoyed about the lack of recognition that squash gets, she was also somewhat grateful for it because she felt like she didn't have all the um, over-the-top attention that some other sports get. Can you see the pros and cons of squash's place within the sporting world? Yeah, 100%. I think there was times when, you know, you, you were on your way up and you were pushing for it and you felt like you deserved more recognition and then there's almost an acceptance comes and then you sort of see the other side of it and you kind of, well, actually, you know, it's not a bad thing that you can just live your life normally and you've not got these pressures. You see someone like an Emma Raducanu now and you go, wow, like, you know, the pressure that she must be under, you know, and it's kind of ridiculous, really. And there's not many people who, in sport certainly, who have been able to get the balance right through their sport and their achievements where, you know, they're able to sort of, I guess, because things like earnings come with exposure and, and things like that as well, uh, your earning potential. So, you know, you look at what maybe a footballer or, or high profile like an Andy Murray had to go through. Whereas I always look at maybe someone like a Chris Hoy in cycling. He always had something that you sort of aspired to where, you know, he's, he's known by everyone. However, he probably doesn't get hassled on the street. He can just have a normal life. So that was always someone I looked at and was sort of, not envious in a bad way, but I was like, okay, well, that's a nice level of recognition. But unfortunately, it doesn't. there's not many people who sort of sit in that that nice space. It's sort of one way or another, I think, unfortunately. Yeah, I do think with Chris, his personality, his temperament plays into that because not every other cyclist, I think, is the same as Chris. But something I've definitely noticed is that with some sports people, after they've retired, and obviously you're no longer the guy or the woman, someone really special, let's say, in the view of society, that can be quite difficult for them. You know, you sort of notice that their identity is still bound up in that. That's got to be tough. And I get the sense that, certainly with Laura, and I get the sense with you, the transition out of the sport into the follow-up career hasn't been too tricky. Yeah, I'm sure it's, you know, it's tough for any sports man or woman to do that transition you know in in many sports you know it's, it's not everyone who can go on i guess sky sports and do the analysis and, and be in the commentary box or whatever you know there's, there's for every one person like that there's probably a hundred who are struggling as to you know have that purpose they've had a purpose every day of their life and then they're struggling to find one so i think i was quite lucky i had a good sort of team behind me who was setting me up for that probably three four years before i retired um Sometimes probably to the detriment of my performances at times, I felt like I had too much of an eye on what came next. But in some ways, I'm glad I did it because it made the transition. Certainly, if you'd have gone into then something like lockdown, I was lucky that I had about 18 months before lockdown where I'd, I'd retired. So something like that, I think if I'd have only just retired that year, it could have just been a complete, what am I doing now thing uh, and could have been quite lost. And then you would have, to have started again more probably would have enjoyed the actual time because you could have had some time off, but then starting everything up after that, you'd have had zero momentum. So I was able to sort of build on the momentum a little bit of my career. And um, then that didn't hit you too hard, really. Yeah. I think the identity aspect of being a, a sports people, that, that can be a very hard thing for some people as well. 100%. Anyway, back to you specifically. Let's return to the age of 16. And you've committed to squash. For someone who won the British 
senior national title 10 times. You never won the juniors. You weren't considered to be a huge talent at that time. Is that fair? And what was your own outlook of where things were going and people telling you that you didn't necessarily have the talent to make it? What was your experience of all that? Yeah, a lot. I'm really proud of that, that, um, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, the sport is growing, for example, in the US and there's a lot of pressure that the parents put on the kids at a young age because they've got to get in the right Ivy League school and they've got to get their education and they're doing that through squash. I'm always telling them, look, it doesn't matter if they're not the best under 12 or whatever the age group is, you know, just keep, if they're enjoying it, they'll, they'll, that'll mean they want to work hard. And if they're working hard, then that means they're enjoying it and keep going round and round in that little thing and, and get some good advice along the way. And, you know, you'll, you'll do fine. I bet a little bit of dedication at the right times. And, and, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint really. And my name was never, my name was never mentioned in any of these articles or the, you know, players to watch out for in the future. And that used to sort of just fuel my fire really. I used to say, okay, well, I've got two arms. I've got two legs, same as any of this. Why not me? And my, the coach that I worked with at that time was very good for that. And he said, you know, forget about the junior squash. You're going to be a good senior player. And just sort of listen to him and, um, eventually, so I saw the progressions as well. That was the other thing. It's easy to say that, but then if you're not improving, it's quite hard to believe it. But I kind of gradually, I think how I got to 14 in England in the under 12s. And then by the time I was under 16, I got to number six. And then, so I was gradually working my way up. And then in the under 19s, I got to number one. And I was gradually getting closer on individual players and beating them. A guy who I did get a point off when I played him at age 10, I beat him when I was 16 for the first time. And you know, so you're always seeing these little stepping stones along the way, which kept me going. And they are important. And then age 18, this is something that um, I found particularly fascinating about your career, because I remember commentating on some of your matches and reporting on some of your matches at the Commonwealth in 2014, completely oblivious to the restructuring that had gone on in your game at such a fundamental age. But you're 18 years old. David Pearson, who was going to go on and be your coach, who wasn't at that stage, had a look at your game. And I'm going to quote him here. He said, your technique was horrendous, <laughs> <laughs> but he spotted the will to win though. So that determination and what was that favorite D word of yours? The dedication. The... Dedication. Okay. That dedication was there, but your technique was a bit iffy. So with David, you pulled it apart bit by bit and you had to unlearn everything that you had learned, like right the way back to even your grip, how you held the racket. And I just found this such a, a fascinating thing to do. I, I can't think of any other elite sports person, certainly no one who's reached number one in the world at such a formative age, age 18, Boris Becker's already won his second Wimbledon by this point, who's completely dismantled the game as you did. So how hard was that to go through? And there must have been doubts. Yeah, I mean, the biggest word there was probably trust. You know, um, I have it a lot with players that I coach now and you can see the ones that implicitly trust you and the ones that think they do. And there's a there's a completely different buy-in. And I knew uh, David Pierce, who I went to when I was age 18, started coaching me. I'd seen that he'd produced sort of three World Cup ones trusted him implicitly really what he was saying to me made sense he had the video evidence to sort of back it up and I just completely trusted him and bought into it and it's probably a two-year process really and uh, sort of a blow to your ego I'd just progressed up to England number one 
probably got up to around top 150 in the world standard and was on the up. And then he said, right, we've got to start again from scratch. And then to sort, to sort of go back to barely being able to hit the ball when uh, you were sort of on the up was definitely a blow. But probably the best thing I've ever done in my life, to be honest. And it's the old sunken cost fallacy. And I think this can be applied to so many areas where, you know, we're on a path, let's say it's a specific career that people are on, but in their gut, they have this gnawing sensation that it's not quite right, but they've earning so much money and they've put so many years in and so they carry on and that sense in the background is still there. So I do think this can be applied in, in so many areas. But for you, when you had that blow to the ego or you felt like you couldn't control the ball even or you know you were struggling to, to hit it, so you'd taken loads of steps back. Obviously, there's the trust element, but how did you cope with the, the frustration? I'm not sure I did. I think it was hard, um, you know, probably took yourself off into a bit of a, a bubble. You know, there was an off-season bubble where I went to live in Harrogate with, with my coach at that time and just spent um, every day sort of being a little bit blinkered, to be honest, and came out the other side a bit, just immersed myself in it. And But it was a bit like having a pack of cards, really, and having only three suits of them that you're working and you're playing against other people who've got all four, you know. So I had the physical side, I was very good. The tactical side, I was developing. My mental side was was pretty good at a young age. Always had that will to win, like you said. But then the technical side was just diabolical, and you know was just zero. You know you're not going to win anything like that. So I completely had to you know strip that back and start again. And the irony was that whilst I was spending so much time on that, I actually got a little bit less fit, physically fit, because I was you know the 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 structure of my week had changed. There was less sort of physical sessions. There was more technical sessions in there so then it probably took about three or four years for it to all come together and and then I always say that then the technique unlocked my physicality you don't just get physically stronger by going and working harder in the gym you can unlock something technically that makes you more efficient and then the physicality you feel like you're 50% fitter overnight you know so I always went on that sort of philosophy and it sort of took me uh took me eventually to the top yeah and part of the decision to deconstruct your game was having to let go of your previous coach is that right he was a chap called mark i know you've been very close to but to get to the next level you had to leave him essentially that's also a, a truism of life isn't it sometimes relationships you have to make hard choices like that whether it be outgrowing friendships or whatever it may be but that is the nature of life was that a part of it and how hard was that that was probably the hardest, one of the hardest things I had to do. You know, he, Mark did everything for me for 10 years, you know, gave me extra sessions. I was working in his shop to pay for lessons. I was babysitting his kids. I was really close with his family. I just decided that I needed to go down this more technical route. You know, um, Dave Pearson was a very technical coach. I felt that was what I needed and I needed to sort of make that, you know, rip the plaster off and make that brand new start. And I'm not a big fan, actually, of sort of, players who sort of look for that magic formula with coaches and, and change their coaches every sort of six months or whatever and go through 20 coaches in their career because I think that ultimately then it's almost like they're blat there's, a, there's a bit of a blame game going on there it's almost like well ultimately you've got to take responsibility so I had two coaches in my career one who was sort of through the juniors and one that was with me for sort of 20 years of my senior career and um, sort of like to think that sort of quite a loyal person I think that once you understand what your values are and what drive you, then you can understand what annoys you and what 
then motivates you now. So I've had that with boot on the other foot now, being a coach myself. A couple of players have moved on that I've worked with it. You know, you can take it really personally, but once you understand that loyalty is your one of your and sort of relationships are one of your driving factors, you can understand then why that annoys you. But that might not be everyone else's driving factor, you know. So you can actually, I think I understand. I started to understand, I guess, what I'm getting at in that period that loyalty was a big thing for me, and that's why I found it so hard to to change. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So we've had that period of taking and reassembling your whole game which obviously paid dividends and like say the best decision of your life and let's have another eureka moment as it were when you were chatting to the psychologist mark borden who basically spoke about developing your strengths because i've spoke to someone very recently actually who was an international netballer who said that in training coaches are invariably going, okay, you need to improve this, you need to improve that, you need to work on this. And so you can really start focusing on things that can be perceived as weaknesses to the point where even the person I spoke to sort of said that uh, she was like, oh my God, I'm not even any good at netball. And so really lost sight of what was strong about her game and everything like that. So can you just unpick this aspect of your career and how fundamental this was? Yeah, a little bit of a background. I'd sort of worked my way up to the top 10 in the world and I'd actually been top 10 in the world for about four years. And then at the end of 2007, I actually needed shoulder surgery, which actually ended up taking me out. I didn't hit a squash ball for six months, five, six months, and then was off the tour for nine months. So real sort of opportunity sort of, I was on average about eight in the world at this time and obviously massive blow to be at that time. And I remember coming into Mark's office to say, well, I can't do anything else. I might as well work on my psychology sort of thing. And psychology had probably been a little bit, I'd sort of got by to a certain point with that nat- natural will to win and determination, but I'd not really looked into the details. And I'd only gone to Mark when I'd come off a tournament and I'd say, oh, I felt like this went well that week, but I need to improve on this. Can you help me? And it was all quite reactive. And he was always trying to get me to be a bit more proactive with it. Right, what we're looking at, can we plan ahead? When's your windows? And he used to get frustrated by the fact that tournaments happened week after week and there was no rest. And when are you going to you know, reset and plan and so on? And I just remember coming in the office in his sleigh, probably down in the dumps, probably one of my lowest depths. And he just had a big smile on his face and said, finally, we can do a bit of good work. <laughs> um, and I think if I'd have had my right arm available, I might have hit him at that point because... Uh, it wasn't kind of what I wanted to to hear, you know. I was down completely down in the dumps, and and but you know he had an unbelievable point. He said, "Finally, we can actually go to work on, you know, there's a reason why you've been between five and eight. You've hit a bit of a plateau, not a bad place to plateau, by the way. It's better than plateauing lower down, but I've not quite broken through. And I think we've been so focused on weaknesses up to that point, just pulling up the things you weren't so good at. It's a very British mindset, right? I'm not very good at my technique, so." I'll bring it up. And and I needed to do that at age 19 because I had a glaring weakness. But then I got myself to a point where I was a bit of a 7 out of 10 at everything. And I didn't have anything that my opponents were scared of or worried about or really going to win me matches. If you only looked at my best results, they all came when someone was a bit tired or the draw opened up. And I got a win when someone had a bad performance. You know, I got the look of the draw or something. I didn't win where I went through and I beat people out playing them day in, day out. And we just looked at it, we said, look, you're an all-rounder. How can we turn you into, how can we make, you know, turn some of these so-called strengths into super strengths? And that was where the sort of 
terminology super strengths was was born and uh, it came from a complete low moment in my career really when i was not able to hit the squash ball for six months so um huge lessons there really mother's day is around the corner find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from blue nile from timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. That low moment ending up being a blessing is just um, such a recurrent theme. Yeah. You know, often things that appear to be bad can end up being just what the doctor ordered. So what did he identify or how did you identify things to focus on and how much of an impact then did just shifting the focus then from I want to develop those things that I'm really good at as opposed to just trying to build up those areas that perhaps will never be world-class? Yeah, I think we, we basically use a real old school pie chart thing. You know, we broke it down into those four areas I mentioned before that the physical, the mental, the technical, and the tactical, we broke those down into small areas within each of them, you know, sort of sub areas and marked myself out at 10 against the best player in the world at each of those individual areas. So, you know, which player was the physically the strongest, which player had the, you know, the best backhand drop and so on. And it was amazing. I was probably seven out of 10 at everything. And there was maybe one or two areas I was in eight, like, you know, my determination, things like that. And we just sort of said, right, that's amazing that. How are we? And we got my coach to do it. Mark did it. I did it. And it all averaged out at being just a bit of an all-rounder. And to qualify this, say, it was very different at age 18 when, you know, my technique was probably a 2 out of 10. So I needed to pull that up to a 7 or 8, you know. Um, but I got to a point in mid-20s where I was just, I was almost quite a night, quite nice to play. I was tough to beat, but I was I was easy to play because I was just kind of, you knew what you were going to get. I was a known quantity. Uh, you knew it wasn't going to be an easy match against me, but if you had your head screwed on, you'd win. And 
I wanted a bit more than that. I wanted people to be worried about me. I wanted them to fear me. And uh, that's where the sort of like my nickname became the wolf. And that's sort of where that started really. Like I wanted to become the sort of hunter. Um, and uh, we sort of, we sort of wrapped with that really. And um, the two areas we spoke about were my physical fitness, that determination, physical fitness, and then my volleying. Because I always liked to volley from a young age. I don't know whether it was come from a tennis. I always liked to, I always like to go to the net. I always like to do uh, and serve and volley. I played badminton, so I was always a really good volley. I said, right, can we turn that into a super strength? And when I was back on court for the next sort of 10 years of my career, I, every single session I spent at least half of it working on volleys. So stop just working on things you weren't so good at. Worked on things you were really good at so that you were just super confident on them all the time and and yeah, it, was, it ended up being a really good strategy, really. But you've got to be almost a little bit of an all-rounder to get to that point. And that's probably where I was at sort of age 27, 28. So just applying this then to everyday life, I mean, have you applied it in any other areas, this trying to identify super strengths in other areas like of coaching, of work, relationships? I don't know, anything. 100%, yeah. I've done a couple of... Mark's actually got me to do a couple of after-dinner speeches for him. And, you know, you're talking about... Um, we're all trying to be good at everything, aren't we? And and it's impossible, you know, but we've all got something that sets us apart. You know, it's identifying what that is and then working on it. You know, I guess when we're coming up in school and stuff, they again use that younger sort of analogy. You learn about maths, English and geography and history and so on. And then we're supposed to then start to specialize, aren't we, through university and then through our jobs and, and everything. But then you know, can you specialize even further and become the best in your business? Like, you know, like, is it okay just being a, an accountant or can you be the best in a sub area of that where you really trade yourself up and you get a little niche for yourself? You know, it's no different than, you know, I guess, you know, being a, being a broadcaster, being a journalist, you know, I, you know, can you specialize in certain areas? So your knowledge of certain sports or certain areas, or you're going to be the best on the podcast or whatever it is, you know, there's, there's always sub areas within areas, isn't there, that you can narrow down to become the best at. And it doesn't mean you have to be the best at everything. We use like David Beckham as an example when when we were coming up that, you know, Mark was, he was quite close to Manchester United. I think he did some work with them. And just saying Beckham would go after training and he'd just do free kick after free kick after free kick. And, you know, he, he could barely kick it with his left foot. <laughs> but he didn't really work on that. He didn't really work on that, you know. He didn't really work on his head in. He didn't really work on his speed, but he worked on his corners, his free kicks, because he knew that that was his strength. And he knew that that was the difference between winning 1-0. And we saw that in that World Cup match, didn't we, when he scored that free kick. And that was because he practiced his strengths. Oh, I think that's such a good example. Yeah, David Beckham, because I remember him in his pomp. You'd get out to him on the on the wing, wouldn't it? And if he had a bit of space and Dwight York and Andy Cole were running in the middle, you'd think, right, here's a goal. And it was uncanny the amount of times he'd be able to land it on a sixpence and one of those two would score a goal but like you say couldn't couldn't really dribble couldn't kick it with his left foot wasn't a great header so just as someone to keep in mind for the power of developing your strengths David Beckham's great and so just the intention almost of okay don't just think about what you're not good at but focus on that other side putting your attention on what you're good at even that can have quite a subtle difference on how you feel when you're doing something as well did you find that yeah, definitely. It helped me just day in, day out, just have an identity and just make sense of, you know, the thing with squash is there's so many different facets that you need to train, you know, to 
you need to have endurance, but you need speed, you need power, but you need flexibility and you need, you need the tactical the tech, and so on and so forth. And, and there's so many contrasting things there. And once you understand what it is that you're working on, you can then build training plans around that. You can build game plans. When I went on the court, I knew what I was trying to do. Um, you know, it's kind of no secret to it, but when I was the best player in the world, you knew what I was going to do when I went on there within reason, but I just trusted myself to be, that would be a match winning strategy and, you know, all right, I'm using a sporting example, but you could do that in life, right? You know, you've got a strategy to pay the bills every month through what, what it is that you could do in, or, you know, a strategy to, to further, you, 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 I think we're all capable of having a niche, um, in what we do and, uh, I think it's a very British thing to sort of always build up and tell everyone, oh, I'm not very good at that. And I'm like, well, that's fine because I'm sure you, there's loads of things you are good at though. And we, we don't tend to mention those so much. You know, we're always quite bashful, aren't we, as a, as a society and underplay and downplay these things. And, you know, yeah, I wasn't shouting from the rooftops about it. I was, guess I was still being British in that sense. But just privately with my team, we were like, right, we've got these strengths here and we've identified that we know how to work on them and this has given us confidence in our method and um yeah when when the chips are down as well knowing you've got that always that plan b to go back to that you know um if all else fails you know that that gave me so much but you know so many matches you think back to that you won or came out of because you found the ways and a lot of it came down to this really just knowing what your strengths were yeah i like what you said about the bashful nature of the British. Very true, isn't it? You know, if you want to make a British person uncomfortable, just give them a compliment <laughs> and to see them squirm. Very true, and yeah. So that you said about in terms of developing your super strengths, as you call them, but you everything was, you were solid across the board before that. And then you built up the areas that you were able to really excel at. And I was just sort of, while you were chatting, I was thinking about it, you know, in various more normal should we say life areas so for example relationships i was thinking what are the key all-rounder skills that you need in relationships uh, tell me if you disagree listening talking obviously doing things without being asked and having difficult conversations for me they are four obviously being considerate as well but four or five like fundamental all-rounder things so in our other areas of your life do you break them down in that way as well public speaking you mentioned doing that every single area there's going to be the the kind of basics that you need to nail including in relationships which people don't put enough attention on the basics if you like of how to have good relationships but then focusing from that point on okay but this is what i can be really good at yeah and i think it could go the other way around as well i think that seeing people yeah, I know you talk about relations, just bring it back to sport for a second. I think I've seen people go the other way around where they're incredibly talented in one area at a young age, but are not rounded. You know, and it's almost like they're going they're going the opposite way from me, where they've got this big strength, but actually they just need to kind of pull up their weaknesses first and, and to allow the strength to shine. I kind of did it the other way around where I was a bit sort of an all rounder and then I had to develop some strength. So whichever way you do it, whether that's you know, we, we've all got kind of that friend who was always in a relationship when they were younger. And then we've got that friend who was kind of never in one that, because that might just be, but then the friend who was never in one went, he might then be better at keeping a long-term one when they, when they finally get one, for example, you know, when it comes to relationship, because the other person might be good at getting into them, but might not have some of those qualities you described. So it's probably only when you get to a certain vintage that you're able to sort of 
the rubber meet the road in the two areas really you all need strengths things that are uh, people are attracted to essentially aren't they i would say aesthetically things that people are attracted to in the first place but then you need this sort of well-rounded side of things that keeps the longevity going in in something like a relationship yeah absolutely well said you mentioned trustworthy in terms of your values do you know what your others are are you aware of of the things that you value highly yeah definitely i think i did i did something actually quite recently on this so where we sort of had to identify things. We were talking about the vision for the future of my academy and one of the the sort of, um, um, what's the word, one of those sort of workshops was about if you understand your own personal values and then the values of my head coach and you bring them all together and then you can kind of develop a bit of a ethos kind of thing for your overall thing. And, and we just put that sort of big ones were loyalty, relationships, and then things that probably that work ethic is a big one as well, you know, just that, um, but linking that to enjoyment as well. So it's not sort of sergeant major work ethic, but it's like actually embracing and enjoying hard work. So it's actually fun. You know, the day a player comes to me and say, I want to do this session, uh, as opposed to you making them do it. That's just music to my ears because it's kind of, there's a deep down enjoyment of what you're doing. And ultimately all of these things come down to, um, having longevity, sustainability, otherwise they're flashing the pans, you know, they might last six months and then you fall by the wayside, you know, they've got to be able to be sustained, um, with good habits, but you know, enjoyable habits over, over a lot of time, really. So they're, they're the kind of things really that you're after. Yeah. Do you remember, how did you find out or uncover what your values are? Because a lot of people might not really know what their own values are and it's such a valuable exercise if you like to go through and and also they can change over time change over time yeah probably would have struggled if i was in my 20s or perhaps it was just an age thing and uh and uh, again I'm, I'm being that bashful english for a bit of maturity you know finally got a bit of maturity so you're able to know your own mind a bit you know and not be a sh and not be sort of i don't know like you've got to be okay to be there's no such thing as being wrong is there they're only your it's like your opinion, isn't it? There's no such thing with the wrong opinion. It's just your opinion. So at the end of the day, you've just sometimes just got to be not afraid to to trust yourself. And, you know, um, my psychologist spoke at the end of my career about using my gut a little bit more and my intuition to make decisions rather than overanalyze it for a long period of time because otherwise you're just tying yourself in knots and wearing yourself out. And you're like, well... If you're not going to use your gut to make a decision when you're 35 and you've been professional for 17 years, when aren't you? And I'm like, yeah, good point. So it's a bit like that, really, just using your sort of gut. And it's it's more like an intuition at a certain point rather than a, a sort of just a, a guess, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. Um, I'm a huge advocate of following intuition, generally speaking. I think, you know, our mind often doesn't know what is best, which is why I'm always a little bit skeptical of, for example, five-year plans. So what you're saying is when it came to unpicking your values, actually, they were quite clear to you. Yeah, definitely. Definitely at this point, just go with your gut. Uh, no such thing as a wrong answer. <laughs> you know, only, only a hesitant one. No such thing as a wrong decision, only a hesitant one, you know. That's a nice quote. Right. Let's turn our attention to 2014 at the Commonwealth Games. We mentioned about squash and the fact that it doesn't get the recognition it deserves by the IOC. So the Commonwealth, in many ways, is the shop window, isn't it, outside of squash. And you'd won it in 2010. So looking to defend your gold medal 
in Glasgow, so home Commonwealth Games. And I didn't realise this as well, because I remember seeing you at the... Uh, actually, were you in the doubles? You were in the doubles final, weren't you? Yes, we were, yeah. I commentated on that with Laura Massaro. It was the last medal of the whole Commonwealth Games. Bloody nightmare, let me tell you. I mean, you do well to make sense of doubles. Thank God Laura was next to me. That's all I'm saying. Because it'd be like, you know, forehand, <laughs> backhand, forehand, backhand. It's chaos. Let! Laura, what the hell's going on? It's chaos. I remember seeing you after you'd won gold, and I had no idea of, at that point, really what you'd been through in the in the weeks preceding it because i mean i've had knee surgery on the meniscus in my knee and there was no way i was going to be back on the tennis court four weeks after so it was during a practice session with dp wasn't it and you just felt something go in your knee and you were like that doesn't feel quite right and then you went to kings of leon and there was some doctor there a british doctor who noticed you hobbling a bit funny and said come and have a little chat with me and we'll do a scan or whatever else so when the scan came through saying yeah, you're going to need to have surgery just four weeks out from the Commonwealth Games, from the shop window. It was a proper tearjerker for you, wasn't it? Yeah, I thought that was it, you know. Uh, thought that was just completely it. You know, that was the biggest thing for me. That was my London 2012. You know, I went to watch London 2012 because I thought I was, for ages, I buried my head in the sand and was like, can't believe we're not in London. And I'm just going to not go. I'm going to pretend it's not happening because I can't face it. But then once it came, I was like, no, no, I want to go. And, I remember the sort of week before scrabbling around on the internet and Twitter and managed to get some tickets for Super Saturday and saw um, our good friend Jessica Ennis Hill win gold and, and things like that. And it was unreal and just sort of wanted the closest thing to it, really. So then sort of four four weeks out to be told, you know, pretty much that you can't do it. Um, and I don't know whether it was just blind stubbornness. I said to my wife there and then I was like, I'm going to come back and I'm going to do it. And... Uh, I owe the doctor so much anyway because he was he was coming around seeing me every day and he was treating me and then the physio Jay from Manchester but the doctor just seeing me at that concert I probably wouldn't have gone to see him otherwise I just thought he was so innocuous I can't have done anything wrong because I was just doing nothing on the court really and I thought it'd be fine in a few days and um, he he said no you've got to come and see me and if if I'd have, if I'd have left it any more days then I might have run out of time. But yeah, I went in for the surgery four and a half weeks before the first round and um, sort of skipped a few steps. You know, wouldn't have done it this way had I had the time. And I think I played, some, I started off doing 10 minutes static solo and I was ghosting in the sand pit at Manchester. We're doing all, I was living with an ice machine permanently attached to my leg and, you know, strapped up, dosed up everything, every painkillers, and then somehow got to the starting line. I think I played one game maybe three days before the, the tournament started and then I had two matches on the first day. So I kind of don't know how I got through it and ended up somehow winning it. Uh, my wife was pregnant with our first child during all this as well and I'm there with my foot up while she was basically catching me ice. And, and <laughs> so you can imagine, that she, she basically didn't say this, but her body language said, you better win after all this so uh kind of made sure i did what a star she is yeah so what did you learn from that whole experience then for example having the ground open up beneath you of this sense of oh my god it's not going to happen briefly and there's a documentary and you were crying just recalling it becoming the wolf well worth checking out that period for example of feeling so down and then all of a sudden bang having this thought no, I'm going to do it, even though it seemed like such a long shot, and then actually doing it. It wasn't necessarily your greatest achievement compared to your British Opens, your Worlds, but in terms of what you had to overcome to 
to win it, it was in many ways your greatest achievement. So what did you learn from that whole experience and the, the change in the emotions, getting over the line, all that stuff? I just thought that sort of nothing's impossible, you know, if you put your mind to it. I think that, you know, that was a time when I probably channeled a, a further super strength, which was my experience. I just said, look, at this stage of my career, I'm coming up 34. Um, it was actually my birthday during that week as well. And I had all sorts happening through that week. I was asked to be the flag bearer bearer for the team England to the open ceremony when I wasn't going to go to the ceremony just purely because I didn't want to stand up for that length of time on my knee and I was worried it was going to swell up and all sorts happening I just sort of said look no one's got as much experience as I have I'm the most experienced player in the field now so even if I can't do the work it's all in there it's in there in the past and I just need to summon out you know that strength for that week so it became a sort of a tactical thing it became a mental thing and um, it told me if there's areas of your sort of game that are down, if you've got these strengths, then you can pull up some of the other areas to sort of um, sort of compensate for that. You know, some, you see in all sports, you know, sometimes the best performances are when people have got backs to the walls, you know, like a football team with 10 men or, you know, a boxer who can't see out of one eye or whatever it is. And that's when you can sometimes summon your best experience. You know, I've seen him squash players who are injured in a match. They play their best game because they're having to, you know, they can't rely on all of that, you know, all of the areas they've got to really delve deep into, dig deep into some of these, these, you know, certain areas. And that's exactly what I did really. So trusting yourself and having faith in yourself was fundamental in that whole experience. Yeah, and just believe in it, you know, at the end of the day, like it, it wasn't going to happen if I didn't believe in it, did I, you know, so I had to believe in it. Uh, you know, I knew that it was probably slim chances, even if I did believe in it, but it certainly was no chance if I did it. So I, I, I almost felt like I had no choice, really. Um, just had to go for it. And actually, I remember at that time doing some of the worst training sessions I'd ever done in my life because I couldn't use my right leg. So... My wife was working for the British cycling team at that time. She said, oh, there's some people who've had this injury before and they took the pedal off the right side of the bike and just pedaled with one leg. So I tried one of those sessions and it was, honestly, it was the hardest training session that I've ever done to this day. So I just sort of found ways to get it to get it done, you know, um, and, you know, be resourceful and have a good team around you as well where you've got kind of good advice. I was I was lucky with that. And you did win gold, and I interviewed you shortly after that, which was uh, obviously a career highlight. You and Usain Bolt, I think, at 2014. Um, and then, <laughs> and uh, uh, just a quick word on the opening ceremony, because you mentioned that you know you weren't going to go, and then you were selected to be the flag bearer. And a funny detail that I quite enjoyed was that they uh, had a wheelchair for you, didn't they? So that because there's a lot of standing around for the opening ceremony, it's like two hours on your feet essentially. But obviously, with your knee, you couldn't do that. So when there was a standing round, they had a wheelchair that you'd sit in and no one really knew or perhaps, or some of the athletes didn't know the, what you'd been through and probably looking at you thinking, God, Charlie, big potatoes over there. Who does he think he is? Like, was that a bit awkward? Yeah, basically it wasn't quite a wheelchair, but yeah, the physio, the physio was carrying around just a normal chair at that point, just um, behind me. And every, t- we sort of walked forwards 10 yards and then sort of stand still for whilst the next team sort of came on and, then we'd walk another day. So it probably took about an hour and a half to get to the stadium. And my physio was like, you've got to sit down. I've got to put your leg up. And yeah, I bear in mind I'd been voted um, to be the flag bearer by by the Team England athletes. That's why it's such a big honour. 
I think at that point they probably would have unvoted me if they could have done because, <laughs> because they were like, they were all standing up getting tired and there's me the yeah like you say Charlie Big Potato sit down and they probably sort of on my throne and they yeah if they could have if they could have changed who they voted for at that point they probably would have done I was probably the least popular person in the squad at that point. Funny and. So you did win gold in 2014. Let's just move forward, though, because I've got another lesson that comes from your third, when you were going for your third gold in 2018. So you're in the twilight of your career at this point, and you were hoping for a big hurrah, but you got ahead of yourself, didn't you? I did. You know why? I get asked this occasionally. If I, if I was able to change, play one match again in my career, what would it be? And it's it, I, it would be just the quarterfinal in the Gold Coast Commonwealth Games in 2018. I just... I just built up. It was my last season. I just wanted to go out with something. And I think the Commonwealth was my chance because perhaps on the world tour, some of the Egyptians were a bit too strong by then. Uh, I still went into the Commonwealth as the top seed. And I think I just built it up. I put too much pressure on myself and, you know, never too old to to learn and make mistakes, you know, simple as that. And, you know, it's good in some some ways because I can look back and say, ah, you know, it... um, there's still lessons there, you know. You even at age 37, I was still learning. But I just basically was a nervous wreck. I couldn't hold the racket, couldn't play a drop shot, and you know I don't want to take it away from my opponent because the guy played a very, very tactically good game. He slowed the pace down. He gave me. I liked to feed off pace, and he gave me no pace to volley, and he lifted it up and frustrated me. So it was a good tactical game, and um, but you know I'd proven probably that I'd beat that guy sort of nine times out of ten, and. And it was just sort of one of the, those performances um, that uh, I sort of look back on and go, can't be too greedy on one hand, but on the other hand, I'd love to play that one again. Yeah, sure. And it, the lesson really being about not getting ahead of yourself and I suppose staying present. Yeah, it, it worked out really well for me to sort of say, this is my last season. You know, it enabled me to go all in. I'd been umming and ahhing for two or three years and probably after Glasgow, the following summer I had another meniscus surgery on the left side this time it took me about 10 weeks to get over it I'd had the shoulder surgery of course going back a few years and I just felt like you know the body was getting a little bit um it was sort of beating me I was losing a bit of hunger from time to time just as a parent now you know your priorities had changed and umming and ahhing and I couldn't make a decision and, and just saying right this is going to be my last season going all in it did help me uh, through that season. It gave me a purpose, you know, it, it gave me an identity going into that season. Unfortunately, I just perhaps put too much pressure on going out on a high. But I think overall it was still the right thing to do because it made me enjoy the last season. And I think probably if you if I, if you put a gun to my head, I'd probably admit that that was more important than winning that last title. Yeah, uh, well, that's totally understandable and speaks volumes. And actually that, takes me to another comment of yours that I've noticed or that I've listened to where someone asked you, you know, what it was that you missed and what you really loved about playing squash. And you said about being locked in battle. So you're not thinking about past or future. You're not thinking about what's for dinner or whatever it may be. So you're really at one with the moment. And so looking back, because obviously you won the, three times the British Open, three times World Championships, 19 months as world number one. So, you know, huge accolades and the most successful English player and achieved so much. But looking back, what is more important, or not more important, but what's the more 
enjoyable thing almost. The trophies and the achievements or those moments where you are completely just lost in the playing and being you know, at one with the sport, as it were. I think so. I think that, you know, the trophies are the icing on the cake. Uh, you know, I can still do that locked in bit even now at times. You know, I had a practice match with one of my academy players this afternoon who he knows I'm going on holiday Friday and he said, come on, this is the last chance we're going to play. I, I want to see where I'm at against you. And, and I just had a game with him and we sort of got locked in at one game all and just managed to still sneak the better of him, only just, but I'll be probably paying for it tomorrow. But we've been going through a few things this week. We're going on holiday, we're moving house, got all things going. And just for that hour that we were on court playing, I forgot all about that and I was just locked in and, and the world championship was going on in Egypt this week, but... That was our little world championship, the two of us. He was getting annoyed that he couldn't be his coach. You know, I was trying to fend him off. We were, the heart rate's up 180, beats a minute, whatever it is. You know, you sweat it, you're working hard. And just love, just love that. And I'll do that as long as I can, even though it's not got the titles at the end of it now or or, or the sort of, you know, the, the big tournaments. It's not a world championship, but he's still, you know, that, that lead match that two club players might play on a Thursday night at six o'clock, you know, the two of them, that's their biggest thing in their sort of life at that moment, you know, because the speed is squashed. There's no time to think about anything else. So you're all in and you just, I, I love it. And I'll do that. It's kind of like a drug really. And I'll do that as long as I can. Yeah, the reason anyone really falls for a sport is by definition, loving a sport means you've really got to be lost in it while you're playing it. And I think um, with anything you do, even with a, doing a podcast like this, you know, there's a lot of stuff I have to do around it. But actually, like the conversations, you know, while I'm having a conversation like this, for example, you know, I'm not thinking about what I'm going to cook later. I worry about that in a bit or what's gone before or anything like that. And so the accolades in whatever sphere you're working in, they're all well and good. And I think the society narrative is that that's what it's all about. And of course, your achievements speak for themselves. But Actually, if you can find anything that enables you to just get lost in the activity, you've won straight up. You know, and if you can get paid to do that, even better. Hundred percent, and that's you know that's the thing for me with with squash. Um, you know, I'm very biased, of course, but you know, and there's many many sports with that. But just the nature of squash is just two people sort of locked in a in sort of a glass box or, a, you know, four walls. And when that door closes, you know, it's you two just chasing that ball around and hitting that ball. And it's a very in-the-moment sport. And, you know, my training used to say to me, you could tell when I was tired because I used to just jabber away during training, you know, I'm talking to him. And then all of a sudden, I'd just go deadly quiet. And he's like, right, Nick's locked in now. He knew that it got to a certain level of toughness, the session where I was just in the zone now. You know, I was locked in, I was all in. Uh, I didn't have time to think about asking him how his kids were or what the next part of the session was. I was just concentrating on getting through that bit and head down. And, you know, that that's it. Basically, squash is like that from the first rally. You're straight in. Yeah, that is the beauty of, like you say, squash, but sport generally is that, sport in general, you know, yeah, that ability absolutely. to just to lose yourself. And that's, you know, that is what we love. We love to lose ourselves, but yet, there's the idea that it's about aggrandizing yourself and building yourself up. My wife just got back into netball. She's just the same, you know, she's not played the team sport for all those years. She just gets into it and you just lose yourself in it. And I think that, you know, with this, in this day and age, the social media and 
you know, the different distractions and obviously, you know, there's all sorts of things happening in the world, isn't the cost of living going up and stuff. And you, we need those things that are going to help us escape that are, that are healthy. You know, they're not, you know, all right, everyone, you know, most of us enjoy having a beer on a Friday night or whatever. You could sort of zone out doing that as well, but actually doing it in a sort of healthy way where, you know, it's just, just this, nothing better than sport for that. So, I will, or whether it's at uh, the world's highest level or not, I'm always going to sort of promote a, a sort of sport, sporty household uh, for my kids just because it's just so good for sort of, I think, your mental welfare and mental well-being and physical well-being as well. Totally. Right, last couple of things, Nick. So you're obviously a coach now. You're trying to develop the next generation. So your nickname, as you said, was The Wolf. And that was down to you know how determined you were. Are you more holistic in terms of as a coach? So looking to really develop the person as well as the outcome, that kind of thing. I mean, how do you differ, let's say, as a coach than as a player? Yeah, I understand, you know, that that my methodology was for me, you know, it was my values. It was me unlocking my sort of hidden talents and hidden strengths. And, you know, everyone, some people might respond in a good way to that. Other people might need a slightly holistic approach, like you said, so... You know, one of the things we always try to do is we actually use sort of a, a bit of a spotlight tool where we look at that personality, performance preferences. We see what sort of really rocks their boat, what excites them, how they need to be managed. And then if you can sort of almost meet halfway with what your expectations are and what the sort of thing is that excites the player, you can un- understand what makes them tick. Then he's somewhere there. You know, one thing I've been really conscious of is not just saying, well, this worked for me, so this is how we're going to do it because there's a million different ways to do it. So really tapping into the player, which is what my coach did. You know, he did coach everyone like he coached me. You know, he coached me person first. And uh, yeah, that's really our philosophy, to be honest, building that trust, building those relationships. And then over time, hopefully you get to know what makes those people tick. And that's when you can really go to work. And just to finish, Nick, you've got a penchant for a good saying. (laughs) And I know one of your favorites is don't go where the path may lead, go where there is no path and blaze a trail. So how would you unpick that? And someone listening, how could they look to put that in practice in their own life? Yeah, it became my favorite quote because uh, at the English Institute of Sport in Sheffield, where I've trained off court for a number of years, the squat rack that I always like to use, that was to sort of quote, was all the quotes around the gym as you get in a lot of gyms. And that was, the one that was above the sort of station I often find myself working in. And I had a picture of Chris Hoy going around the track as well. And he was one of my favorite athletes. The, you know, not just a great athlete, but a great guy as well. And a lot of admiration for him. And that just then on the back of that just became, it really resonated with me. I sort of saw it every day and I just loved it. And I just sort of thought that it's sort of saying to me that, yeah, there is a path that you can sort of see ahead of you. So I don't know, the next generation of, squash players that I coach, they can see the sort of path that I trod, that, uh, that was trodden in by myself, but actually they've got to find their own way. That might lead them in some ways, but then they've got to then find their own trail. They might find a, a, a shortcut that's faster or even better than mine or more, uh, have better sights along the way. So sort of like that, really. You might see where the sort of path may lead, but find your own path uh, that's unique to you. Very nice. Well said. Right, Nick. Well, listen, it's been a, a pleasure talking to you. I'm delighted you've come on. I still am buzzing from the 
compliments and brown nosing you did at the start of the interview so i'm very very grateful for that it, that's really sort of sustained me through this chat but no in all seriousness like i said i think your your career is fascinating to it, particularly that aspect of you know not being the guy who was marked out to be a number one at 16 and then going through those deconstruction at 18 and then turning over every stone to really get the most out of what you could and then coming back to that key lesson around well but you know just losing yourself in the sport, you know, is as being the most fundamental thing. So there's so much good stuff to take from it. Anything you want to uh, to add or emphasize or indeed plug at this point? No, I see. It's always great, you know, to for squash to, um, you know, it always seems to be a little bit the bridesmaid. So, you know, but there's a lot of sports out there that are sort of struggling for those column inches. You know, we always focus, don't we, on the same similar sports. So, you know, I've, you know, it's really you know, uh, an honour for me to still quite quite humbling really to be able to tell my story and it's only sort of from my point of view there's a million different ways to do it but I just think it's great that squash still gets a little bit of exposure through that and anyone who's listening to this, you know, have a look at the squash because it might surprise you if you've never seen it before you might see it close up and go, oh wow, actually that's an interesting sport that I've not really paid much attention to do, to before so just trying to sell our, you know, our sport as as well as sort of talk about my individual story as well. Nick, Matthew, it, it has been a pleasure talking to you on the podcast. I'm very grateful for you coming on and uh, I hope you've enjoyed it and it's been lovely talking to you. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Nick Matthew. I really enjoyed chatting to him. I think there were so many valuable lessons to take from his story. I'd love to hear what you think. Do drop me a message via my website, simonmundy.com or on Instagram. And please do go ahead and subscribe to my YouTube channel where we are adding life lessons aplenty. The link is in the show notes. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.